Um, all right, so uh, let's start. What we'll, I think what we'll do is um, start with the hand, um, some more of the poetry from the handouts we were looking at, because despite the fact that it's dirty and we have to deal with that, um, there's some important points about poetic form that get illustrated, which is really what the interest of those things are, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, um, I would, except that the English Department Xerox machine is a bizarre machine that if it took over the world, we would be in real trouble. Um, so I have not very good Xeroxes of them. And this is after um, Xeroxing for quite a while, many different times, and finally saying, OK, do it your way. So I let it do it its way, and it's still completely screwed up in ways that are puzzling to me. Um, however, you can try this in ways that are beyond puzzling. It's Xerox the same sheet twice for no reason. Uh, that's what happens when you scan and it doesn't know what it's scanning. Um, it's Xerox the same sheet twice for no reason. Didn't Xerox the other sheet. Um, did all sorts of things. So what I would say is look on with people also. Um, here is another sheet. And what, what you'll have to do is, is just figure out ways of putting it together. But um, what the first thing I want us to look at, which is actually is coming around since what we were talking about on Tuesday, no, t is today Tuesday? Yes, what we were talking about on Friday was rhyme. Um, on the actual, if you have the syllabus with you on the sheet that has the syllabus, there's the an anonymous poem from um, 1747 called The Poetess's Bourrimé. Um, what, um, this is from one of the books um, for the course. It's the um, Lonsdale edition of 18th century um, poetry or 18th century verse. It's the Oxford book of 18th century verse. So that's at the bookstore. Um, but I Xerox this sheet as well. You should get that book. It's a good anthology and we'll be using it from time to time. So, um, so um, Bourrimé is, uh, was a sort of parlor game. Um, in the days before Xbox, um, actually even the days before Atari, um, and <laughs> way back. Um, and basically what would happen is people would be given rhyme words. It was actually a sort of a version of Mad Libs. Um, people would be given rhyme words and um, then would have to write the poems that led to those rhymes. Um, so this um, anonymous poem um, by an anonymous 18th century woman, um, is um, playing on the idea of bourrimé. Bou means end, um, the end of the line. And so what, um, it was a French, it was a French diversion um, then brought into England. Um, so what bourrimé means is rhymed endings. So it's a game of rhymed endings. You get the rhymes, but not the lines. Um, so the poem, the poetess is, th th that title is actually Lonsdale's, but the poem is, Dear Phoebus, hear my only vow. Phoebus is Apollo, the god of poetry. Um, so often you will invoke Apollo as the god of poetry um, when you're writing a poem. Um, Dear Phoebus, hear my only vow. If e'er you loved me, hear me now. That charming youth, and then she interrupts herself. That charming youth, 
But idle fame is ever so inclined to blame. These men will turn it to a jest. I'll tell the rhymes and drop the rest. So she's about to say what she feels about things, but then she says, but gossip gets around, and the gossip is always mean gossip. Um, idle fame is ever so inclined to blame. Fame there means gossip. It means um, the story that gets around about you. It's from a Latin word, which means story. Famous people are people who are, um, to use a slightly archaic English word, are storied people, people that stories are told about, people whose stories are told. So idle fame means idle gossip. Idle fame is ever so inclined to blame these men, if they were to read my poem, the men would turn it to a jest, I'll tell the rhymes and drop the rest. Um, so then we get the rhymes. Desire, fire, lie, fi, wide, ride, night, and delight. Um, so some of you are smiling. Um, what do you think's been left out? You're, Obviously, the rest of her trip to Six Flags. Right. <laughs> she went for a ride on Six Flags. Is that right? She, she stayed till it was night. It was a delightful time. She had some chicken. Um, and um, <laughs> she told a lie. Um, the, it's a little bit harder with desire and fire, but we could do it. Um, they sat around the campfire. Um, and someone said that, that he really desired some pizza. Um, okay, works. Works for me. Um, uh, but of course, that's not what it is. Partly I wanted to <laughs> show this to you um, because one of the things, as you, I hope saw from uh, McFleckno and also from some of the poems um, on the handout that sort of went around just now, um, that went around the first day and sort of went around just now, is um, how much 18th century poetry um, you get um, things not told you but um, um, censored with dashes or blanks um, so that we never get Shadwell's name, for example, in McFleckno. Um, in um, Pope has a poem where he describes um, or he has someone complaining to him about his poetry um, and says, you keep putting in dashes um, instead of naming out the names, instead of naming the names. Um, you're trying to save all Newgate with a dash, Newgate being the prisoner. So saving all Newgate with a dash is just not naming anyone. Um, so those dashes are ways of not saying things on the other hand, the dashes are often extremely transparent. Do you remember um, if you looked at the note? I should also tell you, by the way, that when poems are both in the Penguin edition of Dryden and the um, Oxford Anthology of 18th Century um, and Re Restoration in 18th Century, which the bookstore also has, the Oxford Anthology notes are probably more helpful. The Penguin um, notes are kind of for people with um, who are sufficiently expert in the time period that they'll remember the names. Um, when, you, when they read the notes, the notes are um, as explanatory, but much more telegraphic. Um, so uh, the Oxford Anthology is probably a little bit more useful note-wise um, when the same poems are in both. But do you remember um, S-D-L-Y and who that was? 
No, no, Shadwell's just SH blank. But this is S-D-L. It, it's just, he's only named once. It's Sedley. So it's not really not telling you who Sedley is if it's S, instead of S-E-D-L-E-Y, it's S-D-L-Y. Um, if you're Sedley, you would know you were the person being talked about. If you were Googling yourself, you might not find it, which would be useful. But um, they had different ways of Googling at the time. Um, everything was different in the 18th century. Um, in other cases, what you will have is, blank, is um, you'll have a word like ring, and then it will rhyme with K-G. And who could figure that that means king? Um, so the dashes are often or usually meant to be transparent. Here the dashes are pretty transparent also. Um, that is, you get the rhyme endings, and you could probably, not without too much difficulty, come up with a poem that wasn't about Six Flags that would still make sense of these rhyme endings. Um, the, re the other reason then to mention that is to say that what we were looking at um, on the first day, that Beaumont um, passage where he talks about how um, the relish of the muse consists, you don't have to go back to this, I'll just remind you. The relish of the muse consists in rhyme. One verse must meet another like a chime. Is that rhyme between rhyme and chime, they're near synonyms and they chime and rhyme with each other. Um, those rhymes are obvious. Um, our Saxon shortness have peculiar grace in choice of words fit for the ending place. Again, kind of obvious, which leave impression on the mind as well as closing sounds of some delightful bell. Um, so bells, the point about the sound of a bell is you know what it's going to sound like. What Beaumont is saying about this highly rhymed and end-stopped poetry, again, poetry where you really can see the end of the sentence or the end of the phrase, the end of the clause coming to you simultaneously with the end of the line. Um, what Beaumont is saying is the fact that you know what the last word of the line is going to be or that you often know what the last word of the line is going to be isn't a bug but a feature. It's not a problem, but it's part of the way this poetry works. The same is true of limericks, or often true of limericks. Um, as some of you know from the limerick that begins, there was a young man from Nantucket. The cleverness isn't how that limerick is going to end. Anyone who hears the first line of the limerick knows how that limerick is going to end. Um, just to hear it is to know how it's going to end. But the cleverness is not the rhyme word. The cleverness is how you get to an obvious rhyme word. The game of Bourrimé isn't the, the creativity of that game, is not in finding rhymes, which is sort of the naive view of poetry. Oh, it's just so hard to find rhymes. I could be a poet, or I could be a formal poet. I could write um, poetry the way Dryden or Pope does. If only I could come up with good rhymes to say what I mean. But what a, what a poem like the Poetess's Bouvimé is telling you is, and what limericks tell you is actually rhymes aren't hard. Any rhyming dictionary, and there are lots of them on the web, and there are lots of them that have been published, any rhyming dictionary um, can, give you the, can give you every rhyme for any word that you're interested in. 
Um, as you know, there are no rhymes for orange or month or bilge or silver. Um, and so if you look them up in a rhyming dictionary, no rhymes, zero. Um, as you probably know if you've ever tried to write formal poetry, there are very few rhymes for love. It's a real problem in English that what we have, dove and glove and of, and that's really about it, um, which means that poems about love tend not to rhyme on that word um, because the rhymes are, are too banal. Um, as you probably know, there are lots of rhymes on night. Um, bite, sight, light, fight, etc., etc. Fright. Um, so, but you can always figure out what the rhymes are. That's not where poetic creativity um, resides. Where it resides is in getting to the rhymed words. And that's something that the more obvious the rhyme is going to be, the more the poet is thrown upon the words before the last word of the line for cleverness. And that's, again, something that we'll be seeing a lot of um, in Dryden and in Pope. Um, more, not quite as much in the other poets we'll be looking at, but a whole lot of in Dryden and in Pope. Again, the fact that the rhymes are clear and obvious and ring like bells means that um, that's one fewer syllable to work with almost in a way for poetic creativity. The last syllable of the line is almost given to you or the last syllable of a second, well, the last syllable of the second line of a couplet is always given to you by the first line. Um, the last syllable um, and often the last word of the second line is given you by the first line. Pope in his essay on criticism, which I quoted a little bit, uh, which that first thing is from, that we talked about a little bit um, on Friday, true wit is nature to advantage dressed, what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed, um, has another couplet where he's talking about um, bad poetry. And he says that the kind of thing you get in bad poetry, um, if pleasing streams with crystal murmurs creep, the reader's threatened, not in vain, with sleep. So if you're reading a line of poetry that says, crystal streams with pleasing murmurs creep, as soon as you get to creep, you know that the next line is going to end with sleep. And Pope knows you know it. And so he says, the reader's threatened, not in vain, with sleep. Not in vain, because you'll fall asleep before you even get to the rhyme. It's so obvious and so boring and so banal. So there what Pope is doing is he says, of course you know what the next rhyme is going to be. I'm telling you that you know it. But what I'm doing is getting to that word sleep in a way that you're not expecting. I'm getting to the word sleep by not saying, and drowsy shepherds all contented sleep. I'm saying you're threatened with falling asleep before you get there. Um, so it's getting to the rhyme that the 18th century poets are really, really interested in. Um, and that, again, is yet another little bit of a straitjacket for their Houdini-like actions. Um, let's look at, um, no, I'm not going to find it. Um, not Rochester, but to the memory of Mr. Oldham, which is um, a poem by Dryden. Um, it's on the handout. It'll also be in The Penguin. Um, and um, 
but of course there's no index in the peng in the penguin. Um, I think it'll be in the penguin. Well, look at it on the handout. Um, Nope, I'm not finding it in the penguin. Isn't that funny? Um, so um, John Oldham is a poet whose um, a poem of whose we will look at after we look at Dryden's um, poem in his memory. He died at um, 28, I think. Um, he was 20 years younger than Dryden and died um, 20 years or 30 years before he did. No, 20 years before he did. Um, and Dryden wrote this little um, poem in his memory, not funny the way, um, I hope you all found McFlecknow funny. Yes, no, sort of, not funny enough. What's the big deal? No, seriously, what? Funny but not funny enough, is that the? That was funny. Okay, good, that's the right answer. It is funny. Okay, we'll, we'll um, and it's even dirty. Um, we'll get to it, but first let's look at um, a not funny poem of his. We're gonna read some more not funny poems of his as well. Um, to the memory of Mr. Oldham, Farewell, too little and too lately known, whom I began to think and call my own. So I met him too late in my life. He met him two years before he died. Dryden met Oldham two years before he died. I met him, um, so I learned, I, I met him, I came to know him too late and too little. But I began to think and call him my own, my friend. Um, a person who was in um, the, writing the kind of poetry that I liked and a person I regarded as a friend. For sure our souls were near allied and thine cast in the same poetic mold with mine. Um, what do you think of thine and mine as a rhyme there? You can say anything about what you think of it as a rhyme. Is it really common? Of course it's really common, um, like my and thy. Um, it's really common. Why would Dryden use a common, why would he rhyme those two things right there? Yeah? Well, they're both ownership words, unlike, say, creep and sleep. These two really go together. Okay, they really go together as ownership words. What they are, are they're actually grammatically parallel. Um, that is, the ein ending is um, a morpheme, as we call it, that indicates ownership. Um, that's thine, that's mine. Um, so they're not quite what most rhymes are, which is arbitrary connections. If, um, if you rhyme womb and tomb, um, which is a famous antithetical rhyme, from the womb to the tomb, it's not because the OMB and womb and the OMB and tomb mean the same thing. It's accidental that womb and tomb rhyme, but it's an accident that suddenly seems to show you the way to an insight, sparks an idea. Um, so it's accidental, but it sparks an idea. Thine and mine are not accidental rhymes. Um, they're grammatically doing the same sort of thing. Um, it's like if you were to rhyme um, uh, lover and holder, or lovers and holders, it's the E-R-S is plural and someone who does something. A lover is someone who loves, a holder is someone who holds. Um, so it's not, it doesn't feel quite as good a rhyme. Why does Dryden want that rhyme? Just, just justify it. Yeah. Okay, it has the qualities of being parallel and rhyming perfectly. Yeah. Because for all intents and purposes, they're the same word, and the line is about how him and Mr. Oldham are the same 
Right, exactly. Our souls were near allied and thine cast in the same poetic mold with mine. So our two souls were formed in the same mold and the rhyme shows that. Um, the fact that the rhyme is semantically very, very similar as well, that is, it's the same um, grammatical structure and meaning in the two rhyming words. Um, the fact that you have that, that similarity as well as being um, similar by way of sound, um, phonetically similar, that's the point here. We're so close that mine and thine go together. Um, one common note on either liar did strike, and knaves and fools we both abhorred alike. So we each had a liar because, um, as you probably know, the idea of lyric poetry is that it's poetry sung to the liar. The god Apollo is often shown holding his lyre, which he plays because he's the god of lyric and of lyric poetry. So here it's figuratively. Um, you played on your lyre, I played on mine, but we played the same note on our two lyres. One common note on either lyre did strike, and knaves and fools we both abhorred alike. And notice again, we, both, we disliked, notice how the both alike work there. We disliked both knaves and fools um, equally. That is, we thought knaves were as bad as fools, and we thought fools were as bad as knaves. And we were both alike in abhorring both knaves and fools. That is, the word alike can modify knaves and fools, or it can modify Dryden and Oldham. And once again, that doubleness of the heroic couplet um, points to further doublenesses in expression. So knaves and fools, a pair, and we're another pair, Dryden and Oldham, and this pair, Dryden and Oldham, are very similar to each other, just as knaves and fools are to each other, because each one of this pair abhorred both knaves and fools, and this pair as a whole abhorred knaves and fools in exactly the same way. Um, so you're getting parallel and, um, and contradiction, just being very, very lightly, but very, 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 very skillfully being juggled here. I don't want to just keep pushing that, but notice how you can divide this up in four different ways, and it's symmetrical, um, however you divide it up. The play of symmetry that you get in Dryden is great. Um, to the same goal did both our studies drive. The last set out, the soonest did arrive. So you started after me, but you got to the goal before me. Um, so that's a tip of the hat. Um, but it's also um, saying that you became a good poet before I did. Um, that's modesty on Dryden's part, um, modesty that approaches false modesty, except that in an elegy it's okay to talk about how great the dead person is without sounding falsely modest. Um, but also that goal is death. That is where we all end up is death. It's not only that you became a great poet before me, but also you died before me. To be alive is to be headed towards death. And you got there first, even though you were born after me, you got there first. Thus Nisus fell upon the slippery place while his young friend performed and won the race. That's an allusion to a race that occurs in the Aeneid. 
um, Dryden's favorite poem, and we'll look a little bit at some of his translation of the Aeneid, which is probably the greatest, maybe the greatest work of translation in English. Um, it's probably not the best way to read the Aeneid first, but it's a pretty amazing thing. Um, oh, early ripe to thy abund... Oh, I should say what happens nice is um, slips in the blood of a sacrificial animal. Um, that's what happens in the Aeneid. He slips and falls, and um, Eurylos, whom he's um, racing again, wins first. Um, While well, his young friend performed and won the race, oh, early ripe, to thy abundant store, what could advance, advancing age have added more? Um, paraphrase that, someone? Yeah, you got ripe early. So um, it's not, oh, what a shame that he died before he could do anything. It's luckily um, he, was, he, he um, achieved his full powers very, very early. So living longer um, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have needed to live any longer to produce all the great poetry that he did. Well, there is an answer to what sounds like an, a rhetorical question. It might, that is, advancing age might, what nature never gives the young, have taught the numbers of thy native tongue. That is, if you'd lived longer, you might have lived long enough to make people um, imitate your poetry. You might have been around long enough to be an example to others and taught the numbers, taught poetic meters to English, you would have had more of an effect on your contemporaries. But young people never do. You have to live to be older to see the effect that you're having. But that doesn't matter. Satire needs not those. And wit will shine through the harsh cadence of a rugged line. And now he's going back and saying, you also might have um, become a little bit um, less um, bracing in your poetry. But it doesn't matter. You're writing satire. And satire is fine even when it's harsh, the harsh cadence of a rugged line. A noble error, but seldom made when poets are, and but seldom made when poets are by too much force betrayed. So the roughness of your lines, that only happens because you're passionate. Then he goes on, thy generous fruits, though gathered ere their prime, still showed a quickness and maturing time. So even though actually your fruits may not have been quite ripe, they still showed a quickness and maturing time. Should I be pausing there at maturing time? No, it's the only line, really, that we've gotten to that doesn't have a natural pause, and one of the, I think, only one of two that isn't end-stopped. Um, it should be, and maturing time, but we want to stop because we're used to it, but we have to go on, and maturing time, but mellows what we write to the dull sweets of rhyme. What's happened in that line? Let me read that again from the beginning of the sentence. Thy generous fruits, though gathered ere their prime, still showed a quickness and maturing time, but mellows what we write to the dull sweets of rhyme. Yeah? Is maturing and maturing time, I'd, I'd say it could be read so it, it 
Okay, still showed a quickness and showed a maturing time, good. And then, so that's part of what makes it a little bit unexpected that the line goes on. Good, yeah? Well, it's not a tuplet. There are three I'm rhymes, and then the next line abandons that completely. Yeah, so how many of you just, th this happens also a fair amount in McFleckno. How many of you noticed yourself sort of missing a step, like when, when you take an extra step down a flight of stairs that isn't there or don't take the step that is there. Did you notice that reading um, parts of McFleckno and here? Yeah, sometimes what Dryden will do is he will put in um, a, what's called a triple rhyme or a tercet rather than a couplet. Um, there'll be an added rhymed line that we're not expecting because the way heroic couplets work is they get us into a rhythm. And the rhythm is proposal, disposal, proposal, disposal. New word, rhyme. New word, rhyme. And so it's not only that the rhythm of rhymed poetry is we hear a rhyme when it comes, it's also we hear when a rhyme, when a new word doesn't come, when we're expecting some word that doesn't rhyme with prime and time, but we get instead yet a third rhyme on that. That breaks the rhythm up, yeah. It's also interesting that um, every single time where he doesn't use an end step, the rhyme is the same. Um, so I was wondering if you could use more. You mean, oh, you mean so gathered ear their prime and showed a quickness and maturing time. Um, Okay, so, oh, so the I. Okay, no, I didn't notice that. That's great. Um, it probably has something to do with the fact that I is a long vowel, um, and part of what's happening rhythmically there is that the length of the word, the fact that it takes a little bit longer and you have to linger it out a little bit, um, gives you some of the feeling of the end of a line that you're expecting. That is, it's more bell-like um, because it's longer. Um, so the length of the vowel probably does a little bit of the work that a closed um, that a closed line would do. So that's a, yeah, that's a great thing to notice. Thank you for that. Um, what else then? Notice what else happens. But Mel's what we write to the dull sweets of rhyme. Is there anything else to be noticed about that line? Just formally, are you hearing anything else odd in it? Yeah. Well, I think it's funny the line about maturing time is the one that he draws out. Okay, so still showed a quickness in maturing time. Um, so that one gets drawn out in the word time? Well, it's, it's just that he's talking about, like, you know, basically you, you passed before you could, you know, you could have had more decades, and then he, instead of having a couplet, he adds on yeah. a little more that shouldn't really be there. Okay, good, right. So, the, so he's, he's drawing it out, and he's showing, it's almost as though he's illustrating maturing time. And maturing time, now we get, but mellows what we have to the, to, um, sorry, but mellows what we have, what we write to the dull sweets of rhyme. Um, and we see that there's that extra rhyme um, which shows that kind of plenitude that maturing time gives. Um, why dull sweets? What's he saying about rhyme when he calls the, when he talks about the dull sweets of rhyme? So the idea here is that it's like fruit, that if fruit ripens, it becomes sweeter. 
Um, and eventually that mellowing of fruit as it becomes sweeter turns, gives you the dull sweets of the fruit. But here that fruit is rhyme itself. Yeah. Um, and just what you were talking about before, how it's not about the rhyme, it's about how you get to the rhyme. So that there is a sweetness in those, I don't know how rhyme sounds, that that isn't really the sweetest part. Okay, good. Um, it's not the sweetest part, or it might be the least interesting part of what's sweet about poetry. In other words, notice that there's something unexpected here, which is he says, if you'd gotten older, you might have produced more rhymes. But rhyme isn't what it's all about. Rhymes are kind of treats that um, you get at the end of a line. You get the rhyme as a treat. But it really is a kind of, of, a kind of brain candy. Um, it's junk food. Um, it's not that what makes poetry great. You're absolutely right. It's not that it's the rhyming that makes poetry great. And if poetry becomes mellow, the mellower a poem is, then you don't get the harsh cadence of a rugged line, where cadence means what? Pace. Pace or meter, yeah. Um, the cadence of, um, of poetry, the cadence of music. So um, it's the meter that gets you to the end of the line, which might be harsh, and the line might be rugged, but wit still shines in it through the harsh cadence of a rugged line. If you'd gotten older, your lines would have gotten smoother and more mellow, and all that would really have been left to your poetry would be the rhymes, the dull sweets of rhyme. Um, and if it's only rhyme, it's nothing. That's what you get in rhyming dictionaries. If it's only rhyme, it's nothing. So thy generous fruits, though gathered ere their prime, still showed a quickness. That is, they were still sour. They were quick in the sense that, um, uh, um, well, we have the sense of quickness in, in things being electric. Um, they're tangy. Um, they, they have a kind, a, a kind of embracing effect. Um, that's why, that's why um, wounds can be quick. Have you ever heard about a wound being quick? or the pain in a wound being quick, it means it's, it's sharp and bracing and, and hurts a little bit. Um, when you're talking about fruits and the quickness in fruits, what you mean are lemons or apricots when they're still sour before they become sweet or oversweet and dull in their sweetness. Over, anyone who would prefer underripe to overripe fruit would be on Dryden's side in this. Overripe fruit is sweet but dull, um, mealy, uninteresting. Whereas if you get tangy fruit before it quite gets there, um, then you have something like the bracingness of Oldham's poetry. So um, satire needs not those, and wit will shine through the harsh cadence of a rugged line, a noble error, and but seldom made when poets are by too much force, too much force betrayed. Thy generous fruits, though gathered ere their prime, still showed a quickness and maturing time, but mellows what we write to the dull sweets of rhyme. So if time had lasted, it would have mellowed what we wrote to the dull sweets of rhyme, and that would be a bad thing. So notice that Dryden, the greatest, or actually probably after Pope, um, the greatest rhymer in English, is not that much pro-rhyme. Rhyme is a tool and not a goal for him. Okay, what I want you to do now is look up, don't look at the page. And as I read that tercet yet one more time, 
as I mellow your hearing of it to the dull sweets of rhyme. Um, beat out the iambic pentameter, okay? And count as you do. So when I say, um, um, thy gen, just say one. Thy one, res, two, okay? Can you do that? We'll start. We'll start. Um, so you should get to five, right? So thy generous fruit, though, sorry, though, gav, erd, ear, there, prime. What'd you get to? Good, very good. You did great. Still showed. Mm -hmm. Start with one again. Still showed, uh, quickness, and mature in time. What'd we get to? We're still on the same page. That's great. But Mel owes what we write to the dull sweets of rhyme. Six. Yes. That line is hypermetrical is what it's called. That means it's um, uh, like if you take steroids and your mu muscles hypertrophy, it means they get too big. Um, and then you testify that you never took them, and then you get into trouble. Um, that line has one foot too many. Um, it's called a hypermetrical line. Um, it means it's longer than it should be. Dryden introduced what is actually a French line into English. That line is called, does anyone know? What a six-foot line. Actually, Dryden, I, should, I, I, I misspoke myself. Dryden introduced it into, into the heroic couplet. Um, Spencer used it before him. That line is called an Alexandrine. And the reason it's called an Alexandrine was there's a medieval French poem about the life of Alexander the Great. Um, and that poem is written in six-foot lines called Alex and, and therefore the line of that poem was named after that poem. It was the poem about Alexander. If you wrote a, if you wrote a poem in lines like those of the poem of Alexander, those were called Alexandrine lines. You can imagine that someone as intensely alert to language and to puns and to the possibilities of sounds, who was a poet whose name was Alexander Pope, would be interested in Alexandrines. And in fact, he has a line, which is a little bit self-critical, where he talks about how a needless Alexandrine ends the song. You just don't need Alexandrines, he says. And yet he uses them. Dryden uses them a lot. And one way that he will vary the pace, and especially make you take a couple of um, second looks, or a second look and a third look, is he'll use either tercets or alexandrines, or in this case, both. So you have three rhymes instead of two, and the last line is a foot too long. And the effect of its being a foot too long, again, the more, um, the more of this poetry you read, the more your um, expectations will be sensitized to when a rhyme should come and what kind of rhyme it should be. The more you do that, the more you'll notice something like, thy generous fruits of gathered ear, their prime soul showed a quickness, and mature is where the line should end. And so you're expecting a new line, which is going to end with um, the rhyme du jour or something. That was pretty clever, just to make up like that. And I really did. Um, 
but instead, suddenly you're getting a longer line than you're expecting, and the rhyme is going back to the previous two. So obviously, this is all an illustration of what maturing time does. It, it slows things down, makes them mellow, and therefore kind of lazy, and torpid, and sluggish, and then the line itself becomes sluggish. It takes too long. By generous fruits, though, gathered near their prime, still showed a quickness, and maturing time, but mellows what we write to the dull sweets of rhyme. So it's self-illustrative, um, beautifully self-illustrative. Once more, hail and farewell. So now he gets fast again. Farewell, thou young, but ah, too short, Marcellus of our tongue. Um, Marcellus was the person who was supposed to inherit the Roman um, Empire from Augustus, but died at the age of 20, um, died too young. So farewell, thou young, but ah, too short, Marcellus of our tongue. Thy brows with ivy and with laurels bound, but fate and gloomy night encompasses thee, encompass thee around. Um, quick guess about the last line. Quick guess about how many feet. Yeah, can you hear the difference? Thy brows with ivy and with laurels bound, but fate and gloomy night encompass thee around. It, the, the beat would be more obvious if you just got rid of gloomy, and then you would hear it as two iambic lines. Thy brows with ivy and with laurels bound, but fate and night encompass thee around. So why does he put in the gloomy? Why the long line at the end? That's the gloomy night for you. It goes on forever. You don't, and you don't get that last third step, but you're still alive. The rhymes continue. Instead, you get the Alexandrine ending. Dryden didn't know Pope, by the way. Um, Pope was 12 when Dryden died. Um, they may have met once, but Dryden wouldn't have paid much attention. Um, Pope paid a lot of attention. Um, but here, what you get is but fate and gloomy night encompass thee around, and that is gloomy night. It's long because, because death is forever. That's almost what that line is saying. Do you guys think I'm overreading by saying that, or can you feel it a little bit? I mean, I'm not overreading. I'm just curious whether you realize that. Um, you will eventually. That's the kind of thing Dryden was great at. Okay, I partly wanted to do that poem. Partly it's a great poem, but um, and an illustrative poem, but partly because Dryden will sometimes seem like a prig to you, um, a little bit hard um, to believe after reading McFleckno, but you still may feel that way. But here's the guy he liked, um, the guy who wrote this, the next poem we'll look at, upon the author of a play called Sodom. Um, so the play called Sodom and the author, I don't know who they are. Um, I think probably people do know, but I don't. And um, it, does, it really doesn't matter. Um, what matters is the um, harsh cadence of the rugged lines in this poem. Um, and um, if you read it, you know it's fairly dirty. Um, it's actually probably a little bit dirtier than you realize, um, unless you looked up some of the words. So I won't ask any of you to read it. I will give myself that pleasure. Um, so the play called Sodom would obviously be about the biblical um, Sodom, where the great sin in Sodom, as you know from the word Sodomite, was homosexuality. Um, the later idea was that Sodom was the place of gay men and Gomorrah was the place of gay women. But in the Bible, they're, just, they're both plays uh, 
places of, um, of a sexuality that um, the Bible seems to disapprove of. So he addresses the author of the play. Tell me, abandoned miscreant, prithee tell what damned power invoked and sent from hell. If hell were bad enough, did thee inspire to write what fiends ashamed would blushing hear. So your play is so bad that even the devils would be ashamed um, to think about it. Where did you get that idea? So notice that the kind of thing Dryden does in McFleckno, that is, makes fun of bad playwrights and poets, that's what Oldham is doing here. Hast thou of late embraced some succubus and used the lewd familiar for a muse? A succubus is a, is a demon. Um, or didst thy soul by inch of the candle sell to gain the glorious name of pimp to hell? So did you sell your soul by candle length inches in order to gain the glorious name of pimp. If so, go and its vowed allegiance swear without press money to be its volunteer. So swear to be, a, to even without being forced into it, drafted into it, swear to fight on the side of hell. May he who envies thee deserve thy fate, deserve both heavens and mankind's scorn and hate, disgrace to libels, foil to very shame, whom tis a scandal to vouchsafe to damn. So you make shame look good. Um, you're a background duller than shame itself. And it would, it would be a scandal to even be able to damn you. What foul descriptions, foul enough for thee, sunk quite below the reach of infamy. Thou covets to be lewd, but wants the might, and art all over devil, but in wit. So the devil is wittier than you are. Um, you want to be lewd, you want to be dirty, but you can't do it. Weak, feeble, strainer at mere ribaldry whose muse is impotent to that degree had need, like age, be whipped to lechery. So what's happened in those three lines? Have you noticed? Terse it. good. So um, you're so weak and feeble um, and impotent that in order, do people know what the term rake, does everyone know what a rake is? Um, so a rake is basically, a, what is it? Oh, I thought it was one of the stock characters. It is a stock character. The stock character is actually a dirty old man, oh. is essentially what the rake is. Um, or at least someone who's very jaded. I thought and, a rake was like a very young sort of... Well, in Hogarth, the rake's progress, um, but eventually he becomes an old man. The idea of a rake is being, it, it actually takes on several meanings because it has to do with someone who gives himself over to sex but the result of giving himself over to sex is that he becomes jaded, and the result of becoming jaded is that he needs more and more painful stimulus, like um, whipping or actually being raked. Um, and, and with a rake? With a rake, yes. So the, sharp, the, the sort of sharp raking on his back is supposed to get him um, interested. So here he's talking about being whipped to lechery. Um, and notice that... that um, there again, the tercet says, yeah, the couplet isn't going to be able to do it. I have to add another line. Vile sot, who clapped with poetry, art sick. What does clapped mean there? Infected. Infected, given the clap, given VD by poetry. Who clapped with poetry, art sick, and voids corruption. Um, void there means pisses. So you're, you're sick with poetry. You got VD because of poetry, and you void corruption like a, 
Um, shankered prick, that would be, um, we would spell it with a CH instead of an SH, um, essentially cankered. So you're sick and you avoid corruption like a cankered prick. Like ulcers, thy imposthumed addle brains drop out in matter, which thy paper stains. Um, so that's about as disgusting as you can imagine it to be. Um, you have ulcers all over and they drop out in pus, which stains your paper. And yes, those kinds of stains. Whence nauseous rhymes, that is rhymes that cause nausea. I don't know where he would get that idea. Whence nauseous rhymes by filthy births proceed as maggots in some, huh, he's finally not telling us a word, <laughs> like mag as maggots in some turd engendering breed. Thy muse has got the flowers and they ascend. Anyone know what having the flowers means? Is that another like, STD? <laughs> it's not an STD, um, but it is, um, it does have to do, some men think it is. Menstruation. It's an 18th century term for menstruating. Um, it's a euphemism to have the flowers. Um, an obvious euphemism if you think about it. Um, so thy muse has got the flowers. Your muse is menstruating. Um, and they ascend, that is your nauseous rhymes, ascend as in some green sick girl at upper end. So um, your muse is feeling sick, so the rhymes come out, not from below as when women menstruate, but from your mouth um, at upper end. Sure nature made, or meant at least to have done, thy tongue a clitoris, thy mouth a cunt. Um, so that's how nature made you. Um, uh, so what your poetry is, is menstruating through your mouth. Um, your tongue is a clitoris, your mouth a cunt. Um, how well a dildo would that place become to gag it up and make it forever dumb? So that would be really good if I could shut up your mouth with a dildo. At least it should be syringed. Um, and he doesn't even rhyme that, but it should essentially <laughs> um, be, be um, stopped up. Or wear some stinking merkin for a beard. Um, anyone know what a merkin is? <laughs> Do you want to know? Yeah. Isn't it what they would have used as a pad at the time? Actually, no, although it's, it's, uh, it's close. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the grad student. Do you know? Do you want to say, or should I? Um, it's like um, a place for cuticle. Yes. So prostitutes, prostitutes in the 18th century and in the 17th century shaved because um, there were all sorts of um, lice and crabs and things that um, they were that their trade was liable to um, um, expose them to. So they would shave their pubic hair and then wear pubic hair wigs um, <laughs> when they met their clients, yeah. Um, they were also used on stage, um, so that sort of like body stockings now. That is, people wouldn't be really naked, but would look naked because they would use merkins. Um, so what he's now saying is, um, well, so if your mouth um, is, um, is your genitalia, then wear some stinking merkin for a beard. Wear a pubic hair wig for your beard that all from its base converse might be scared so that everyone 
um, would see how stinking your merkin was and be scared away from you. As they, a door shut up and marked, beware that tells infection and the plague is there. Thou, Moorfield's author, fit for bawds to quote, so the only people who would quote you are prostitutes or their pimps, fit for bawds to quote, if bawds themselves with honor safe may do it, except that it would make bawds look, it would dishonor bawds. Um, when suburb prentice comes to higher delight, so when some apprentice wants a prostitute in poetry and wants incentives to dull appetite, their punk, perhaps, may thy brave works rehearse. Um, so punk means prostitute and maybe some apprentice who can't um, afford anything better, may thy brave works rehearse, frigging the senseless thing with hand and verse. Um, frigging, you probably don't know, um, essentially means masturbating. It means rubbing yourself um, as hard as you can sexually. Um, it's come to mean a euphemism for fuck, but that's not actually what its original meaning was. So if you read like a mid 20th century novel and someone talk, talks about those frigging people, um, it's not quite the same thing. It's slightly um, less shocking, but only slightly. So some, so, um, some suburb apprentice is going to try to um, rub your poetry into, um, even senseless though it is, and therefore very, very hard to get any response from because it's senseless, um, is with his hand and verse going to try to make something out of it, which after shall prefer to dressing box, hold turpentine, and medicines for the pox. So he'll read your poetry, he'll realize it's complete crap, he'll use it as wrapping paper for um, turpentine to clean his hands, presumably in medicines for the pox, for VD. It'll be a good place to, to um, hold mercury and things like that. Or if I may ordain a fate more fit for such foul, nasty excrements of wit, may they condemn to the public jakes be lent. People know where the jakes are? Yeah, outhouse. So, I have another idea for what your witty writing could be used for. They could be lent to the public jakes, but he wouldn't use that bathroom. Why? For me, I'd fear the piles. People know what the piles are? Hemorrhoids, Hemorrhoids yeah. So I wouldn't use your poetry um, for that because I'd fear the piles. In vengeance sent, should I with them profane my fundament? So <laughs> I would be profaning my ass to use your poetry as toilet paper. <sighs> I wish people still... That's another what? That's another chair set, too. Yes. Um, <laughs> may they condemn to the public... <laughs> Good. I'm so glad you're noticing. May they condemn to the public Jake's be lent for me. I'd fear the piles and vengeance and should I with them profane my fundament. Good. To profane means to make something dirty. Um, so if I were to use your poetry to wipe my ass, it wouldn't be that I'd be cleaning my ass. I would be making it dirtier than it was. That's what he's saying. Um, they're bugger-wiping porters. Um, everyone knows what bugger means? So you learn a lot in this class if you don't know it. <laughs> no, it doesn't. That's, that's, that's what it's come to mean euphemistically. It's, it's like bug off. It, you can say bugger is not a bad word in America. It's a really bad word in Britain. Mm -hmm. um, if you call someone a bugger, be ready. Um, anyone? Anal sex? Yeah. It is to have anal sex with someone is to bugger them. 
Um, Harold Bloom wrote of a novel of um, of, uh, of Ancient Evenings by Norman Mailer, which has a lot of sexual descriptions of sex in Egypt. Um, Bloom, who had mixed feelings about the novel, said, um, this novel is equal parts humbuggery and bumbuggery, um, <laughs> which is a good line. Um, so yeah, so okay, um, I think your poetry should be put in the public bathrooms, not that I would profane my butt with it. Um, but if it's there, you can bugger wiping porters, that is um, uh, manual laborers who have to use the public jakes. So yeah, go, go there. Um, being a sodomite is also engaging in anal sex. So there, bugger wiping porters when they shite, which is a polite, slightly politer way of saying shit, um, uh, but only very slightly. There, bugger wiping porters when they shite, and so thy book itself turn sodomite. So um, if your book is used as toilet paper, there you can bugger um, the porters who wipe there, and uh, your book itself will become a sodomite. So that's the guy Dryden likes. Um, and if you describe it as, um, as he does as um, a, gen a noble and generous error, the harsh cadence of his rugged lines are showing a noble and generous error. It really, I mean, it's, it's a funny poem. It's not a totally great poem. Um, you won't find it in a whole lot of uh, um, anthologies of literature. Um, but it is a really well done, funny, satiric poem. And it speaks a lot to, about Dryden. It says a lot about him and about the non-priggishness of Dryden. Um, that, that he had such admiration um, and affection for the poet who is writing that kind of thing satirically. He was also really good friends. I want us to get to McFleck now, but he was also really good friends with Rochester um, until they had a falling out. But um, they started out as really good friends. Yeah? A kind of a random question. When was Walpole writing about Rochester? How far after? 60 years later. Because um, when we started reading this, uh, the whole thing about uh, being invoked by the devil sounded a lot like a man whom the muses were fond to inspire and ashamed to avow. Uh huh. The reverse. Yes. So, like, did Walpole, like, I mean, I don't well, think I wouldn't say that Walpole was taking from Oldham because. Yeah. Oh, I see. Much, yeah. No, that that kind of um, I don't think he was actually thinking of Oldham. Um, but that kind of antithesis, it's, it's good to, it's, it's really good to notice it. That kind of antithesis um, is the kind that you'll get um, throughout 18th century. Uh, in Walpole, it's in prose. Um, in the heroic couplet, you'll almost get that balance um, in the poetry itself. Um, Rochester actually makes Oldham look clean. Um, if you guys read The Imperfect Enjoyment, um, that's actually reasonably clean for Rochester. But Rochester, he's also a philosophical poet. Um, and in the, I found it interesting, one reason that I got the, um, uh, the Lonsdale is that the um, Oxford anthology, the Restoration 18th Century Verse, only has Rochester's one um, sort of major philosophical poem, the Satire Upon Mankind, um, which doesn't have any um, obscene parts in it. Um, it's still pretty bitter and vicious. Were I, who to my fault already am, one, one of those strange, prodigious creatures, man, a creature free to be what I might choose, I would be um, 
a monkey, a lion or a bear, anything but that vain animal who is so fond of being rational. Um, and Rochester's poem it actually is pretty good. Um, he and Dryden, as I say, were friends, but then they had a falling out, um, which was unfortunate. But Rochester is basically um, as dirty as it comes um, and as shocking as it comes. I mean, I think the Oldham is already pretty shocking, um, even 200 years later or, two, or, um, or no, 300 years later, more than 300 years later, uh, 350 years later. Um, but Rochester makes him look like a piker. Um, but okay, why don't we turn to McFleck now? What'd you say? I said poor author. <laughs> yeah, that's one reason not to figure out who it is. So again, I sent you um, a little bit of a context for this. Um, but this is based on Thomas Shadwell, um, and Richard Flecknoe had just died. So what um, Dryden got the idea of doing was um, having the dead Flecknoe pick Shadwell as his successor. So here's this really bad poet who says, ah, I need someone who's as bad as me to take over now that my reign has come to an end. Um, and it's, um, I think it's very funny. You don't really need to know who he's talking about, although the notes tell you. Um, but you don't need to know who he's talking about um, to get a sense of what he's saying. What he's saying is that Shadwell stinks. Um, and that the idea that Shadwell would think that he could say anything against Dryden or that Shadwell's critical judgments um, made any sense is stupid. Um, it was a wildly popular poem. It wasn't published till um, four or five years after Dryden wrote it. Um, it was a wildly popular poem. And um, again, the um, Penguin has an illustration of, some, of a version of the poem that someone had copied out. So people were um, copy, cutting and pasting it, um, again, in the 18th or in the 17th century way of doing that. Um, and it wasn't because everyone was so interested in the literary issues that Dryden was talking about, whether we liked Johnson, what we f felt about Decker or Haywood or other of the um, Elizabethan and Jacobean playwrights and poets. Um, it's just that they loved the wit of this, so that just the first two lines um, sound serious. All human things are subject to decay, and when fate summons monarchs, must obey. Um, that could be the first two lines of a serious poem, um, just saying that nothing will last. All these sorts of things will happen. Um, and then if you didn't know who Flecknoe was, um, even though his name, one reason that Dryden is picking him is not only that he's a terrible poet, but he's, that his name indicates that he's a terrible poet. Um, it's a bad name, Flecknoe. All human things are subject to decay, and when fate summons, monarchs must obey. This Flecno found, who, like Augustus Young, was called to empire and had governed long. So he's treating Flecno as though he is um, Augustus, the greatest, um, who, who imposed the Pax Romana, who became um, the um, emperor of, or the, the, the um, dictator of the Roman Empire very early. Um, after defeating Antony in his early 20s. If you saw Rome, you know all about him. 
um, and who um, reigned for a very long time. So he had, he had governed long in prose and verse, was owned without dispute through all the realms of nonsense, absolute. So that's when you realize that this is a parody, not till line six, um, through all the realms of nonsense, absolute. Flecknoe is the absolute ruler of the, of the realms of nonsense. Um, and he was so for a long time. Um, now he has to decide who should follow him. And um, he's wondering as he tries to settle the succession of the state and pondering which of all his sons was fit to reign and wage immortal war with wit. Um, so all his sons, what does that mean? What's, what's Dryden basically saying there? Yeah, and that there are a lot of them. It's really hard to choose. He found it really hard to choose which of all his sons um, could take over his mantle, um, because there's so many poets who are raging, who are waging immortal war with wit. That is, they're not witty; they're at war against wit. Cried, "Tis resolved for nature pleads that he should only rule who most resembles me. Shadwell alone." my perfect image bears, mature in dullness from his tender years. So notice that the word mature, where do we see it before in Dryden? Yeah, in the maturing, um, what maturing years will do. So Shadwell, he was old, young. He was mature in dullness from his tender years. And there's that word dullness again. So the dull, um, the dull, um, sweets of the rhymes. Here it's the dullness of Shadwell. Maturation and dullness go together in Dryden. Um, if you didn't know it was Shadwell, but if you had some sense of who was around, um, what would help you figure out it was Shadwell that he was talking about? S.H. Blank. Okay, yeah, the S.H. would certainly help you. Um, but what would prevent it from being some guy named Schnurk, let's say? Well, the fact that there is no guy named Schnurk. But what would prevent it? Yeah. Well, you need the double syllable in order to complete the meter. Right, exactly. So, so it couldn't be Schnurk alone, my perfect image bears. It could be Shakespeare. <laughs> Shakespeare alone. Yeah, but Shakespeare is long dead. But yeah, Shakespeare is a good two-syllable name beginning with S-H. Um, so is Shadwell, um, so are others. But you know it has to be two syllables. Um, otherwise, you have not a hypermetric line, but what's called a hypometric line, a line that's too short. So you know that it's going to be dada, shata, shut up alone, or something. So Shadwell fits the bill really well. And there's something fun about just seeing how easily Shadwell fits in. It's partly the convention that you don't insult living people, but it's also Dryden is using that convention in order to make the reader do the work of seeing that Shadwell fits perfectly. Um, so again, what Dryden does is he takes a requirement and makes it something that adds to rather than takes away from the poem. So Shadwell alone my perfect image bears, mature in dullness from his tender years. There's dullness, mature in dullness. Shadwell alone of all my sons is he who stands confirmed in full stupidity. Um, and notice how he gets parallel to 
full stupidity. That is, um, the fullness of full stupidity is just containing, as it rhymes with he, it's just like an expansion. It really wraps Shadwell round. The rest is some faint meaning, make pretense, but Shadwell never deviates into sense. Some beams of wit on other souls may fall, strike through and make elusive interval, but Shadwell's genuine night admits no ray. Its rising fogs prevail upon the day. Besides, his goodly fabric fills the eye and seems designed for thoughtless majesty. Shadwell was enormously fat. So um, what Flecknoe is saying is not only is he a terrible poet, but he fills the eye when you see him um, and seems designed for thoughtless majesty. He looks like an elephant. Um, how thoughtless, thoughtless is monarch oaks that shade the plain and spread in solemn state, supinely reign. Haywood and Shirley, that is the Elizabethan poets and playwrights, um, Haywood and Shirley were but types of the, that is prototypes, um, first versions of the thou last great prophet of tautology. Even I, a dunce, says Flecknoe, of more renown than they was sent before but to prepare thy way. So now Flecknoe will talk about himself for a while and um, say, but Shadwell, everything that's boring about me, Shadwell is even better. Go to line 45. Um, At thy well-sharpened thumb from shore to shore, the treble squeaks for fear, the basses roar. So whenever you play your lyre, um, the treble strings squeak for fear, the basses roar out of rage, probably. Echoes from Pissing Alley, which is a real um, name of a place in London. You can imagine what people did there. Um, echoes from Pissing Alley, Shadwell call, and Shadwell they resound from Aston Hall, some of the manuscripts have, about thy both a little fish's throng as at the morning toast that floats along. So he's going down the Thames in a boat, and the fishes are there um, the way they go for junk that's floating on the Thames. Um, go a little bit farther. One, one thing to notice is um, the notes will tell you this, but you may not have noticed it. If you go to um, line, uh, let's just say, um, well, 64, not that much farther. Close to the walls which fair Augusta bind, the fair Augusta, much to fear, is inclined. Augusta is London. Um, close to the walls which fair Augusta bind, the fair Augusta, much to fears, inclined. An ancient fabric raised in form the site there stood of yore, and Barbican it height. Height is a Chaucerian word for was called. Um, in German, anyone know any German? Um, it's heist, it's, it's someone, or heisen. Um, was heist du means what's your name. Um, so the English version of that is height, is called. So um, an ancient fabric raised in form the site there stood of yore, and Barbican it height. A watchtower once, but now, so fate ordains of all, the pile and empty name remains. From its old ruins, brothel houses rise, scenes of lewd loves and of polluted joys, where their vast courts the mother's trumpets keep, and undisturbed by watch and silence sleep. Near these a nursery erects its head, where queens are formed and future heroes bred, where unfledged actors learn to laugh and cry, where infant punks their tender voices try. So this is the place where actors pretend to be kings and also where prostitutes pretend to enjoy sex with their johns. 
Um, it's a place where you learn to act convincingly. Um, and little Maximin's The Gods Defy. Um, so Maximin is actually a character from a play of Dryden's. And Dryden is making fun of himself there, saying that this is the place where all bad poetry comes from, um, including little Maximin. And then he says, here are the great poets never went there, but of course, very easy to find Shadwell and his like there. Um, go now to line 94. Now, Empress Fame had published the renown of Shadwell's coronation through the town. Roused by report of fame, the nations went from near Bun Hill and distant excuse me, the nations meet from near Bun Hill and distant Watling Street. No Persian carpets spread the imperial way, but scattered limbs of mangled poets lay. So it's Shadwell's coronation. Um, Dryden had been present, um, and many other people had been present, at Charles II's coronation about 15 years earlier. Um, the first coronation in England since 1625, so it had been 35 years before there, um, previously before there had been another one. Um, now Shadwell is being um, coronated as the greatest of poets, but there are no Persian carpets spread before him on the street, but scattered limbs of mangled poets lay. So he's walking on... Um, the first idea of the metaphor would be that he's walking on the dead bodies of the poets that he's defeated, as though this were a war. Um, but then you realize that the mangled limbs of scattered, the scattered limbs of mangled poets are, um, their books are just spread out on the street. Um, no one could afford Persian carpets, but there's all this waste paper. Um, so all their books and, and, and all the pages in their books are spread out on the street. From dusty shops, neglected authors come Martyrs of Pies and Relics of the Bum. Um, martyrs of Pies because you would um, bake pie with paper, with parchment. You, you can still get kitchen, par kitchen parchment. Um, relics of the Bum. Yeah, so the poets are used the way, in the same way that Oldham has described them. They're used as toilet paper, and then they just go scattered as trash on the streets that Shadwell is walking down. Martyrs of Pies and Relics of the Bum. Much Haywood, surely Ogilby there lay. So a lot of poems by these poets he doesn't like, Dryden doesn't like. Haywood, surely Ogilby. Much, surely Ogil, um, much Haywood, surely Ogilby there lay, but loads of Shadwell almost choked the way. Um, is that how you want to read it, loads of Shadwell? No, how do you want to read it? You don't have to say. Yeah. Now, if you read it as loads of shed, it doesn't work metrically. You still need that, the two syllables of Shadwell. But what Dryden is doing is he's asking you, remember we were talking on Friday about the way Dryden is getting you, or the way poetry in general gets you to do counterpoint between two or three or four or five different ways of, um, of processing a line as a line, as grammar, as something that rhymes, as something that's metrical, and so on. What he sort of wants you to do when you see, see loads of shh, it's really hard not to read that as shit. It's not lots of Shadwell or pages of Shadwell. It's loads of Shadwell. Um, and the phrase, that's a load of shit, is not a recent invention. 
So loads of shit, of course it's loads of shit, but how do you make it work metrically? Well, again, Dryden's genius, the reason the line works, is because essentially what everyone who reads this line for the first time essentially does is they say, but loads of shit <gasps> almost choke the way. That is, you take a moment to kind of do a mental gasp or a mental cool. That is, there's a kind of beat that it takes for you to process the idea that SH might be shit. Um, a little gasp, a little pop of surprise, but loads of shit, whoa, almost choked the way. And Dryden knows that you'll do that, that you'll see the loads of sh, and then you'll just pause for a second. Um, and then you'll go on with the line, and the pause is built in. He's ready for you to pause, and that lets you have the syllable that would otherwise be missing. Um, so it's totally brilliant the way he solves the problem. Just see it this way. He solves the problem of wanting SH to mean shit when metric, throughout the poem, of course every time you see the SH you're supposed to think shit, but you also are saying to yourself, ah, I shouldn't be doing that because really it's two syllables. I can't make shit and Shadwell metrically the same. Um, but Dryden, when he really wants you to make shit and Shadwell interchangeable in a line, figures out how to do it, figures out how to make a two-syllable and a one-syllable word work metrically simultaneously. Um, and that's pretty amazing. That's quite an amazing little trick to be able to do. Um, and it's just the kind of thing that Dryden is great at doing. Okay, what for um, Friday, what you should read um, is um, Absalom and Achitophel. Um, that is in the... Um, in the Oxford, and you should read the head note in the Oxford as well as, well as the notes here. Aslan and Kittifel is a funny, um, different, is, is, is different from what we've been reading so far. Um, it tells a biblical story, but it tells it um, about current political events that are occurring in England. Um, so you should read Aslan and Kittifel, um, and we're going to read... Um, Religi oh, here's the memory of Mr. Alden. It is there. Um, we're going to read um, Religio Laici, um, which is um, mainly a serious poem. Um, what you should do, I think, is read the preface to it, which is um, long. Uh, it um, goes from page 162 of the um, Penguin to page um, 173. Um, one of those pages is an illustration, so it's a 10-page preface. So read Aslam and Achitophel and um, the preface to Religio um, Laici. Um, Religio Laici means the religion of a lay person, the religion of someone um, who is not a member of, uh, who's not an officer in the church, who's not ordained. Um, and that's Dryden being philosophical. All righty, see you Friday. <laughs>